Hi, everybody. My name's Johnny, and I'm an alcoholic. Hey, Johnny. I'm glad to be here tonight, and I'm glad to be sober. Is there anybody that we didn't introduce? (laughs) I just want to make sure we all covered. I, uh... I'm glad to be here tonight, and I'm glad to be sober. I'm glad to be in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I want to thank uh, the committee for extending the privilege of me participating in an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. It's always been my opinion, and I hope it always remains such, that it's some type of a privilege to be allowed to come and sit in these rooms. I hope I don't ever get it through my sick head that I have a right to everything that goes on in Alcoholics Anonymous just because I was lucky enough to stumble into a room, get sober, and stay that way. Anything that I'm asked to do in Alcoholics Anonymous, I consider it some type of a privilege. And anything that's good or decent has happened to me since I've been sober in Alcoholics Anonymous is some type of an unearned gift. Because I've been sober a long time. Uh, You know, some people think it's too long. And I've had the opportunity in those period of years, over 40 years of my life, to go back and look my life over. And I keep looking back there to try to find out what it was I did, way back there somewhere, that would entitle me to live the way I live today. For the life of me, can't find it. I've looked. I've looked long and hard. So I've come to the profound conclusion that my sobriety is a gift very treasured gift, and I hold it very highly, and I know that I really don't deserve it, so I hang on to it just as tightly as I can because it's such a fragile thing in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm really glad to be here tonight fully clothed and in my right mind. (laughs) I I, I don't tell you that... uh, I don't tell you that for any particular reason other than the fact that the longer I stay sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, the more necessary it becomes for me to remember from whence I came. See, I don't ever want to forget that a little over 42, 43 years ago right now, I came to in a cell in solitary confinement a maximum security penitentiary drifting in and out of total insanity. Now, because of a loving God has expressed himself through our program called Alcoholics Anonymous, no longer necessary for me to crawl around on my hands and eat like an animal. If I don't get nothing else out of this deal at all, I guess I can live with that for a long time. It makes me feel good. Now, I'd like to be able to stand here and tell you without a doubt that that's where alcohol took me to. Oh, I'd love to blame something. That's where I took me to. The only thing that alcohol ever did in my life, it kept me alive long enough to stumble into a meeting of alcoholics. No. I'm as sure as I'm standing here, if I hadn't taken a drink of alcohol, I'd have probably blown my brains out before I was nine years old. You see, I'm a misfit. I don't seem to fit anywhere. I'm restless, I'm irritable, and I'm discontented, and I don't know what's wrong with me. Now, that's a problem all the way starting there. And I don't know whether I was born alcoholic or not. It's totally immaterial to me where you get it. I mean, if you caught it off a toilet seat, it's all right with me. I don't care where you get it. It really, I don't know whether you got it, whether you ain't got it, whether you popped up or something. I don't know. It don't really make no difference to me. I think the great discovery you can make is find out if you have it or not. Now, I don't know what's wrong with me. I seem to be born needing an answer. I was born with it. And I 
don't know what my problem is, so I can't go out and find an answer. That's kind of tough, you know, to go out and find the answer to a problem if you don't know what the problem is. Now, I looked around in my life, saw a lot of people drinking whiskey. Everybody in my family drank whiskey. I mean, they made whiskey, and they drank whiskey, and they sold whiskey. And they do what people who do that do on Saturday night. They gathered up and beat the hell out of one another. That's what they did. <laughs> I mean, they were Irish. They had no religion to hold their guilt down, so they just went crazy, them people. <laughs> well, my uncle drank whiskey and went to penitentiaries. My aunt drank whiskey working up houses the other side of the track. Mom drank whiskey and beat up Dad. Dad drank whiskey and beat up Mom. Every once in a while, they got together and beat me up. I saw, <laughs> I saw what whiskey did to people, and so my reaction to that was, I'm not going to drink whiskey. Look what it does to these people. I'm going to find a way out of this dilemma. I looked up one day and saw my grandmother. My grandmother lived till she was 90 years old, and she never took a drink of alcohol or smoked a cigarette in her life. My grandmother wouldn't think it's a big deal. I've been sober over 40 years. Big deal, she'd say. I ain't had a drink for 90. <laughs> Look at her say, you should have had a couple, Granny. Make you feel better from time to time. Just kind of take the edge. My grandmother, every day of her life, I suppose, as long as she lived, went to church. Now, I'm sitting around because I don't know what's wrong with me. I get some kind of an idea that all I'm going to have to do is go where my grandmother goes and do what my grandmother does. I'd be like my grandmother. See, I'm not like my grandmother. I don't know that. My grandmother's not alcoholic. You couldn't pour enough whiskey in grandma to make her an alcoholic. Matter of fact, you can't pour enough whiskey in anybody to make them alcoholic. You either are or you ain't. It's a little bit like being pregnant. The longer you go, the more it shows. That's the way it works. <laughs> Not knowing what's wrong with me and thinking all i got to do is go rub shoulders with Granny in her church, I got up one Sunday morning went over to sit at my grandmother's church with my grandmother and waited for this thing to happen to Granny to happen to me. I don't remember it happening at all. I don't remember anything about it at all, to tell you the truth. Well, they got to jumping around and carrying on in there. But I just sit there. I don't know what's going on. It took me a long time in Alcoholics Anonymous to realize there was nothing wrong with my grandmother's church. There was something wrong with the jackass sitting in it. <laughs> See, what I was doing in that church is what I've done since I can remember of anything. I'm looking for something way out there to make me feel better in here, which only goes to prove to me that the problem's always been there anyhow. And I found it. I found the answer to life sitting on the back porch of my grandpa's house watching my grandpa drink whiskey out of a fruit jar. My grandfather put that jug down and went somewhere, and I picked it up and took a drink of it. That's all I did. The next couple of minutes of my life was it makes me an alcoholic anyhow. It's not the next 20 years of mayhem I create out there in the world. You see, I'm an alcoholic because I have some type of an abnormal reaction to alcohol. I'm what the book Alcoholics Anonymous calls a real alcoholic. I identify with that specifically, what's wrong with me. Because I took a drink of alcohol, and it went inside of me, kind of stilled the madness that went on in there. That's about all it did for me. It took me from the black pit of nothingness and stood me into the gray fringes of the business of living. It installed in me some type of arrogance that said, damn you, world, it's all right. I'm not good enough to be around the good people, but I'm too good to be around the bad people. It's okay right here. That's what alcohol did for me. But that's not the thing that drove me into the gates of insanity and death and beyond. What got me is what our book talks about that happens to alcoholics of my type once I put alcohol into my system. 
You see, once I put alcohol into my system, then and only then am I drinking to overcome a craving that's beyond all human understanding and beyond all human health. I didn't know that. Because I took a drink of alcohol, and what happened to me happened to me every time I took a drink of alcohol for the next 20 years of my life. I took a drink of alcohol, and three days later they pulled me out from underneath a bridge and stood me in front of a judge and sent me to the Hutchinson State Reform School. Twenty years later, I took a drink of alcohol. They pulled me out of a car in Compton, stood me in front of a judge, and sent me to 20 years in the penitentiary. Now, that's what happened to me when I drank. I got drunk and went places. <laughs> I, I travel around. I went from reform school to reform school to junior penitentiary to penitentiary to nuthouse. Now they call them treatment centers. I'm a little more macho. I'm a little more partial to nuthouse, if you really want to know the truth. It's a little more macho. Hell, if you're going to be bad, you ought to be bad. I mean, don't quit drinking because you puke a little. Hang in there. <laughs> Give it everything you got. Alcoholics Anonymous work a hell of a lot better when you run out of options. I threw everything into the battle and lost the battle and didn't know what I was fighting. I never had a clue what was wrong with me. I never one time ever walked out of one of them institutions from the time I was eight or nine years old and said to myself, think like this, self. Do you realize how long it's used since you've had a series of those electroshock treatments? Why don't you have a drink? Hey, self, have a drink and go out and kill your baby brother. Self, have a drink. Go out there and destroy your mother's life one more time. Hey, self, go out there and run amuck in them streets and destroy and use people and tear things up. Go ahead, self, have a drink. No. I never one time ever thought about that. I never took a drink of alcohol to party. I never took a drink of alcohol to get out of it. I took a drink of alcohol for the reason alcoholics of my type take a drink of alcohol after being sober for a period of time. It's just to go... But see, that's all it takes. All I got to do is to come to the pressure, the desire, and take a drink of alcohol. That I'm powerless not to take the next one. The Chinese wrote about a thousand years ago. I take a drink, the drink takes a drink, and then the drink takes me. That's the way it was with me. I was always insanely drunk somewhere. I'm on a furlough from reform school, 10 or 11 years old, drinking a bottle of Marco Petri red wine. Most of you have never heard of Marco Petri red wine. I can tell. <laughs> the reason you never heard of it is because of the experimental stage of the Thunderbird. That's why you never heard of it. I'll tell you how bad that stuff was. It never saw a grape, but it, it gets you. I'm drinking this stuff, and I don't know. Maybe I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time or the right place at the wrong time. I, you know, I hear people talk all the time about alcohol quit working in my life. I don't think alcohol ever quit working in my life. I, I'm sure of it. If it was, if it quit working in your life, why the hell would you ever drink again? I'm just there on the street corner with my little gang playing gangster. It was before the newspapers got a hold of us. Turned us into heroes. <laughs> and a guy tapped me on the shoulder and said, you ought to try these, and he gave me some pills. Now, I don't remember saying to him, uh, what are those? <laughs> Will they bother me if I take them? <laughs> I just took them. Thank God they weren't X-lax, that's all I can take. <laughs> I mean, there's no telling what kind of andes we could have hanging around here for Christ. All I know is that they worked. Maybe it was like kicking in the afterburners on a rocket ship or something. I don't know what it was. 
couple of years later, I'm on that same street corner with my little gang, and I'm eating these pellets, and I'm drinking this cheap wine. And a guy stuck a needle in my arm. And for the next 14 years of my life, I stuck needles in my arm and in and out of institutions. That's what I do. That's what I do. See, I live out there in the streets. And I do what people like me who live in the streets do. I destroy everything that comes in contact with me. I'm like a plague. There's a reason for that. You see, I'm selfish, self-centered, self-serving, got an ego bigger than this whole room. I'm a taker of things. I'm a user of people. I'm a loser. All takers are losers. You're looking at one. I've been my entire lifetime like that. And at the ripe old age of 27 years old, 26, 27 years old, I came to in that cell in solitary confinement, a maximum security penitentiary, drifting in and out of total insanity. And what's significant about that today to me is that I have been surrounded since yesterday afternoon by friends of mine and people I love and people who love me. Forty-some-odd years ago when I came to in that cell, there wasn't a single solitary soul left upon the face of this earth that would send me a penny postcard. They were all gone, but they should be gone, and I don't have any right to have any of them back. I don't have any right to have anything good and decent in my life just because I was lucky enough to wander in the room of Alcoholics Anonymous and get sober and stay that way. That's it. I wandered into my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous on the fourth day of November, 1959. It was my day. It's the only time I'd ever heard Alcoholics Anonymous. As a matter of fact, uh, it very nearly became my last meeting. And if I'd have known where I was coming that day, I probably wouldn't have come because I wasn't an alcoholic. I don't know what I am, but I ain't alcoholic. I, I've got a lot of things. Got a lot of, I've got a lot of images that I have created, and I have a lot of things that people have named me, but alcoholic's never been one of them. Anytime anybody mentioned anything like that, I hit them because I had an image. I'm sitting on a yard at the penitentiary. I saw some women walk across the yard. And I followed them into this old quasit hub of building up there in the mountain. And I sat down and came to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. So you who are new here at Alcoholics Anonymous, don't care why you got here, I came to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. be 42 years next month to smell perfume. And I've been honking and sniffing around her ever since. So it make me feel like this. You know, I've said that for a long time, but I've, uh, I've come to understand that may have been the vehicle. That it may have been the attraction that brought me to Alcoholics Anonymous, but it's not the vehicle that brought me here. You see, my last time out, I killed me. My last time out, I ended up in the old Los Angeles County Jail dead on arrival, more dead than alive. And they strapped me down on a bed, a ripe old age of 26 years old, 128 pounds of bright yellow. And a medical doctor stood at the foot of my bed and told me I was going to die. That was all right with me. You see, I was at a point in my life where death looked a lot more rewarding than going on and living the way I'm living. You see, I'm living in a world now that every day is just torture and hell. I can't inject enough things in me anymore to wipe away the nightmares of the atrocities that I had committed. And I don't know what to do about it. 
and I'm tied down in this bed, and this doctor's telling me this day after day comes in there. I just keep waiting for whatever happens. And somewhere along the period of time in there, a terror gripped me that I've never known before since. The idea came to me that I was going to live and not die. I was going to get up off of that bed, go to the penitentiary, and come back out and start that rat race all over again, and God knows I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to go on anymore. And I laid there and one night because I knew nothing better to do. I screamed out the only prayer I'd ever said in my life. I said, oh, God, help me. I thought for a long time that nothing happened. There was no blinding flashes of light. Nobody come running down the hall with a dozen donuts and we got an AA meeting down there. <laughs> I didn't get up and wander off into the tulip somewhere. I just went to sleep for a little while. And I don't know how many of you ever kicked a two-year heroin habit, but that's what I was doing. That's the first time I'd been asleep in a long time. I'll tell you how sick I was. Two weeks later, I'm up running around in jail looking for some more of the poison putting me back on the bed I'd just gotten off of. And the reason for that is very simple. Back here, in the back of my mind, I know what makes the big hurt go away. I'm an alcoholic. Now, I know it ain't quite doing what it was supposed to be doing, but if I could find the right combination of things, it will do it. Good God, it has to. It's the only thing it ever has. And being an alcoholic and having that information buried down in my psyche, if you put me in the wrong place at the wrong time in the wrong set of circumstances, I'll be drunk. I don't have any more choice about that to do about flying around this room. I am an alcoholic. You know, my grandmother, who adored me, who thought there was something decent about me, prayed for me every day of my life and her life, as long as she lived. The last time I saw my grandmother, she was kneeling down at the side of my bed in Manager's Clinic in Topeka, Kansas, as I was going through another one of them terrible ordeals. And she was praying for me. My grandmother prayed for me every day of her life, as long as I was alive, which I can remember. And I'm not certain or uncertain whether those prayers work or not. But I'm going to tell you something I know for a fact. It wasn't until I asked God for help that I could get it. From the very depths of my soul in my deathbed, I asked God to help me. I don't know what I was asking him for, but it sure wasn't this. I was asking him for some relief from this agony that I lived in because of my actions in this thing called life and my atrocities toward people. And I didn't know what to do about it. And the answer was, sitting in that room, in that penitentiary, I sit there in the back row, and I loving like to call my throne of contempt. I had my coat collar up and my shades on, because I was cool. If I'd have been any cooler when I got here, I'd have probably froze to death, for God's sake. <laughs> Remember seeing these two big A's up on the backboard? I thought I'd wandered into an anti-aircraft brigade. I don't know what A is. I said to this clown sitting next to me, what's this? He said, it's alcoholics tonight. I sunk down in my seat. I knew everybody see the big gangster hanging out with them winos. Been gangsters anonymous or over hip anonymous or dope fiends anonymous. <laughs> dope fiends. Well, you can get into that. You know what I mean? That makes addicts seem kind of candy ass, don't it? Now, remember, I don't know what's wrong with me, so this don't look like the answer. 
And I'll tell you how frightening that becomes sometimes. On the fourth day of November, 1959, I sat in a room and stared at an answer that I had sold my soul for. But I don't recognize the answer because I don't know what the problem is. I don't know what's wrong with me. I understand what's going on. I'm sitting in these meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, like most people like me who come. I come here to be entertained. I come here to find another group of people to hate because I run out of them. I don't know what I'm an Alcoholics Anonymous for, except I know today while I was here, I'm in the answer to that prayer. I'm sitting in the answer. I don't understand it because God doesn't talk to me directly. Sorry. He's talking to you directly. You better talk to your therapist tomorrow afternoon, too, for Christ's sake. I don't understand what's going on. So I have to trick myself. I say, well, I'll wait for these ladies to get up and tell their racy stories. Now, you got to remember that when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, there weren't very many young, pretty girls hanging around here. If there were, they weren't sent to that penitentiary where I was at, I'll tell you that. These old gals got up and talked with them and said she drank for a long time. You could look at her and know she'd been somewhere for a long time. <laughs> she said, I used to drink. I said, I'll bet you did. <laughs> Bad stuff, too. See, I knew everything when I got here. I'm a walk encyclopedia of useless information. I know so damn much about what ain't true, I don't know what is true. And there I said, for all intents and purposes, a dead man. Staring at this answer. I don't know what's going on. I'm fascinated by these people. I don't understand them, but I'm fascinated by them. I can't understand why they would do anything like that. These people get up on Sunday morning, get in their cars, their own cars, buy their own gasoline. This before it was profitable to carry the message. And they would drive 100 miles up those old back roads and spend two hours talking to a room full of people who didn't want to listen to them. People like me who sat in the back road and made fun of them. Now let me tell you how sick that is to you slickos. Here I am sitting in the penitentiary. I don't know when I'm going home, and I'm making fun of people who are leaving in an hour. <laughs> oh, but I'm hip. <laughs> the reason I don't understand these people is, see, for the first time in my life, I'm gazing at people who are giving a little for the hell they're giving. I don't understand that. I'm looking at givers. I'm a taker. Takers don't understand givers. Takers only hang out with takers. That's why we're all losers. We just hang out till we find another group to use up. Then we go over there. Weed them up over there. The first thing you know, you're like me. You're sitting by yourself. Because you ain't got nobody else left to use. And it comes to the end of the line. And I'm sitting in these meetings of alcoholics. I don't know what's going on. guy said to me, I said to him one day, what do you get out of coming up here, anyhow? You like to look at the animals in the cages? What's your deal? He gave me one of them deep, deep AA answers. Well, son, when you can answer that question, you won't have to ask it. I mean, if you are an intelligent giant, that takes some thought process. And he explained to me why Alcoholics Anonymous is so hard for people like me to get. Too damn simple. For my ego. But you see, when you can understand that, you won't have to ask the question. See, because you'll be doing the thing that's been talked about here. See, you 
cross over. See, what I know about life is very little, but what I do know is about Alcoholics Anonymous. Because I've been sitting in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous on an average five or six times a week for over 40 years of my life. And I have had my eyes open watching what goes on around here. You can call it judging if you want to. I just observe and report the facts. <laughs> and there's something, there's a conclusion that I have come to. My old sponsor, Norm Alpey, when he was alive, used to talk a great deal about crossing over the invisible line from controlled to uncontrolled drinking. I, I don't have any qualms with that whatsoever. But I'm here to tell you something, that there's an invisible line here in Alcoholics Anonymous. And if you're an alcoholic of my type and you don't cross over it, you're going to die drunk. And that's that line where you've got to cross over from being a taker to being a giver. And you've got to give a little just for the hell of giving it. There ain't no way to beat it. And the reason I know that is my book talks about that. My book says that selfishness and self-centered is the root of all of my problems. It doesn't say part of them. It says all of them. I must be rid of them or they're going to kill me. Now, I don't know that in means of alcoholic phenomenon because I'm not alcoholic. I used to sit back there and say, I wish it was. People would jump up at this podium and get God. They'd say, man, oh, man, I used to drink. Come to Alcoholics Anonymous. I got sober. Now I don't drink no more. Everything is just wonderful. I said, guess I'm not alcoholic then. I'm not drinking either, and I'm crazy. <laughs> God, I wish I was alcoholic. I used to say, if I could just be alcoholic. But there's something far more wrong with me than that. I don't understand what's going on here. But I sat in meetings, curiously enough, watching you for my day to come. And my day came. I don't know what day it was, but I do know it was on a Sunday. And I do know that when I got up that morning, I had no idea that that was my day than I had about flying around the room. I don't remember the day, but I don't remember my restlessness and irritability, my nightmares of the night before being any less. I remember waking up in the cold sweats three or four or five o'clock in the morning, three or four times a night, with them pictures of the people I'd destroyed. I remember any of that being any easier, but I do know it was my day. If I'd have known that when I woke up that morning, you would have a different talker here tonight. I was not conditioned to go to alcoholics for answers. I was conditioned to go to people who don't know anything about me for answers who only recognize symptoms but have no solutions. I'm ready to go to the therapist or the psychiatrist or the sociologist or the criminologist or the lawyers or the doctors or the preachers or the teachers or my baseball coaches. I wasn't armed with that information when I woke up, so I went and sat where I always sit, meeting of alcoholics and And a little guy that I knew did 23 flat years in the penitentiary stood at the point of alcoholics and I was like this a long, long time ago. And told me something nobody had ever told me before in my life. He looked down where I was sitting and he said this simple thing to me. You don't have to live like this no more if you don't want to. You don't have to do it like this no more. Nobody had ever told me that. They've been telling me since I was seven years old that I shouldn't drink these things and swallow these things and smoke these things and shoot these things. But they never told me how to live without doing it. And what none of them ever took into consideration is very simply this. Every time they told me that, I was as physically sober as I am right now. How many times I wanted to scream out at them, Good God, doctor, don't you understand? 
still don't. If you're not an alcoholic, you'll never understand why I drink. But if you're not alcoholic, I'll never understand why you don't. <laughs> Have you ever washed them? I mean, they are absolutely pathetic with what they do with whiskey. A few, well, I don't know, maybe a year ago, my lovely wife and I were coming back from somewhere. We caught a plane out of Dallas, and it was full, so they kicked us up to first class. And wheels up, the steward and I run down there with a bottle of wine and poured this lady across the aisle a glass of wine. She curled up and went to sleep. Karen said, look at that, look at that. I said, I see it! Very spiritual. About 30, 40 minutes later, the steward, I woke this woman up, asked her if she wanted lunch. She said yes. She ate her lunch, curled back up, and went to sleep again. Ain't touched that wine. I am fit to be tied. <laughs> I'm staring at her. I can still see her sitting there. I wanted to strangle her. About three hours later, we're going into our final approach into Long Beach, and the steward I came down and said to this lady, do you want to drink this wine? And the lady said, oh, no, it makes me sleepy. <laughs> I wanted to say, you better sleep for three hours, for Christ's sake. <laughs> see, I don't understand that. I just don't understand it, why she would do that. But see, she wouldn't understand it either, if I'd have had a drink and Shanghai the plane to Mexico. <laughs> See, they don't know, if you're not alcoholic, you don't understand alcoholics. I don't care what anybody says. You ain't got this terrible madness inside of you. This restlessness, this irritability, and this discontentment. And that terrible, terrible craving once alcohol goes into your system. Nobody will ever understand that but another alcoholic. They'll never understand it. That's why Alcoholics Anonymous works, because one alcoholic understands it and relays it to another alcoholic. That's why A has always worked, because the same sickness that I sit in and be given a daily reprieve from, so do you. And if you don't have it, you don't have it. I went up to this little man after that meeting, and I said to him, how do you learn how to live? He gave me the answer that we should be given newcomers in Alcoholics Anonymous. He told me there was a book called Alcoholics in the library, and if I'd go get it, I'd go home and pray that he'd find some part of me in it. I guess he's prayed real hard, that little fella. Because I went over and took the book out of the library and commenced to read it. And the greatest single event in my life that happened to me is not coming to Alcoholics Anonymous, not that day that I came. The greatest thing that ever happened in my life is not my uh, children or my grandchildren or the good life I live today or my lovely wife or the home that I live in or the host of friends I have. Those are all important, but they're not the most important thing that ever happened to me. The most important thing that ever happened to me in my life happened to me sitting in a room with a man in the penitentiary a long, long time ago doing what our program of recovery says is the fifth step. I heard myself say to that man that I was an alcoholic. And from way down deep inside of me, there came a freedom that I carried with me at this very instant. Because what I know about me today is I know exactly what's wrong with me. Exactly. You see, I'm an alcoholic, and I suffer from a disease called alcoholism. I am not an alcoholic and anything. When I was an alcoholic and something or other, I couldn't have this program. 
And the reason I couldn't have it is I separated me from you. I ain't like you. I'm a little better than you. I'm a little slicker than you, a little hipper than you, a little worse than you, a little better. Not like you. When I became just like you, or at least like the people who wrote this book, it became my great pleasure to be allowed to participate in this program of recovery for the only program of recovery for alcoholics of my type in 9,000 years of recorded history. This is the only thing that's ever worked for people like me. And I get to do it. That's what blows my mind. I get to participate here. It's the most amazing thing that I know of. I walked out of that penitentiary on the fourth day of June, 1961 to a world I didn't know anything about. I never spent a day out there doing the things that other people do. I never knew what it was like to drive an automobile with a driver's license, to work. I never had a job. I didn't have a social security. I didn't have nothing. I'm armed only with the first nine steps of our program of recovery and a dream. And the dream was that maybe someday you would allow me to come and sit in your meetings. That's all. I said to myself little things like, man, if they give me the privilege to come and sit in their meetings, I'll do anything they ask me to do. But you see, I never thought you'd ever ask me to do anything. Because I didn't know anybody like me who crawled out from underneath rocks upon rocks and stood in the sunshine. I thought you were all those nice people who drank and I heard and saw came to that penitentiary to see me. You know, I'm very proud to tell you that for over 40 years of my life, I have done exactly what Alcoholics Anonymous has asked me to do. Sometimes willingly, sometimes grudgingly. But I always did. I went home to see my mother. She fell off the steps blind drunk. I picked her up and put her on a couch. I said, Mom, I'm going to an AA meeting. She said, fine, I think you should. <laughs> I'd like to tell you I got sober, my mom got sober, and my dog got sober, and everybody's sober. We're just sober, sober, sober. That ain't my experience. I can't speak to you beyond my experience because it's just supposition. My mother drank herself to death. It took her 30 years from the time I came out of the penitentiary until my mother drank herself to death, but she accomplished it. And I had to sit and watch it without any power to do anything about it whatsoever except to be her son. Smack dab in the glorious warmth of this magnificent program of Alcoholics Anonymous, surrounded by these magnificent, beautiful people, I watched my mother, who I adored and loved, drink herself to death, powerless to do anything about it. And I saw her, the last breath she took, I held her hand sitting in the hospital. If you'd have said to my mother a moment before she died, aren't you proud of Johnny? Man, he came out of them gangs, out of them streets, out of them penitentiaries. He found out he was alcoholic. He joined that A&A man. He lived a good, normal, decent life. Aren't you proud of your son? You know what my mother would have told you? My mother would have said to you, My son is not an alcoholic. His life got a lot better when he quit running around with them Mexicans. <laughs> now, I guess... If I was one of them 90-day wonders that fell out of one of these drying-out joints... I could give you that psychobabble they talk about. I guess your mama was in a state of denial. A denial is a river in Egypt. My book don't talk about no denial. My book talks about a delusion. The delusion that I'm like other people or presently maybe has to be smashed. 
And for the people who drank themselves to death, that delusion is never smashed. The idea that somehow, someday, I'm going to control and enjoy my drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. That's why people drink here. Because the delusion has not been smashed. And the obsession is someday, somehow, I'm going to control my drinking. That's why it's so important to realize what the first step of our program of Alcoholics Anonymous says in the third chapter of our book. It says we have to concede, Tom talked about it, to our innermost self that we were alcoholic. That's the first step in recovery. The delusion that I'm like other people, or presently maybe, has to be special. I'm not like other people, but thank God I know that. Thank God I don't want to watch. I watch too many of my friends around here try to be normal. They work hard at being normal. And they work hard at trying to belong somewhere they ain't never fit. And the only way I've ever fit in those type of situations is to drink. I watch that. Thank God I know what's wrong with me. Thank God I know I'm in a solution. I went to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. A man walked up to me and told me he's going to be my sponsor. I didn't ask him to be my sponsor. He just told me he's going to be my sponsor. I said to him, what's that? Don't talk. Here's another one of them intellectual giants. Statements that come from idiots that don't know nothing. Buck don't talk about no sponsor, baby. He said, yeah, but don't talk about constitutionally incapable of being honest with yourself. I said, what do you want me to do? He said, why do you ask me? I said, you just told me you were going to be my sponsor. He said, if I can't run my life, what makes you think I can run yours? I said, then what do you want me to do? He said, why don't you do what I do? I said, just what is it you do? He said, well, if you do what I do, then you'll know what I do. (laughs) I mean, isn't that deep? (laughs) That grab you intellectual giant. It's so simple. It's so very simple. He talked a great deal about home groups. Every meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous you ever go to, there's people staying sober there. Whether it's up to your standards or not, they're still staying sober there. Then there are people in there who can't stay sober. And the people who can't stay sober won't do what the people who stand sober are doing. Or they have quit doing what the people who stand sober are doing. It's very simple. All you gotta do is sit around and watch. It's like a passing parade. You know, because the ones who ain't doing it are more attractive to the newcomer than the ones who are doing it. I mean, the ones, you know, come on, man. You mean to tell me i got to go to four or five meetings a week and make coffee and sweep the floor, set up the chair, stay late, go out to coffee after the meeting, work these st- Come on, man. Them people over there don't do that. Man, they just, whenever they feel like it. And they at the dances on Saturday. They have to go dance and have fun. We don't look like we're having much fun over here. But you ought to hear us laugh. It's not a tee-hee-hee-hee-hee or ho-ho-ho. I mean, it's a laugh. Man, I've been giggling all since I got in the car yesterday. You hang around with Pete and Champ, you're going to laugh. I guarantee you that. 
I had to find out what this, you know, the first thing my sponsor told me, told me to get a job, go to work. I said, what do you mean? He said, work, W-O-R-K. He said, you're, you're a bum. I said, hey, wait a minute, I ain't a bum. He said, what are you? I said, I'm an AA member. He said, no, you're an AA bum. Bums don't work. He said, you got to get off of welfare, Johnny. I said, wait a minute. Don't you ever say that to me again. I'll hit you. I ain't never been on welfare. Don't ever say that again. He said, what do you call living in penitentiaries? Self-supporting through your own contributions? So I got a job, went to work, got a paycheck, somebody stole it. You want to hear somebody scream? Listen to a thief when they get stolen from. I ran and raved and hollered and screamed and bucked and carried on. If I'd have caught that guy, you'd have another talker here tonight. I'd be hanging around up there in Folsom with the rest of the losers telling you, Hey, don't work! Give it a cry. That's what they always tell you, you know. Anyway, yes, it does. Just somebody that works it. You ask somebody who lives good in Alcoholics Anonymous whether AA works or not. Ask Tom if AA works good. I've been watching him live good for a long time. I've been living good for a long time. Sure, Francine lives good for a long time. No, Bo does. He's married to an alcoholic. (laughs) Not all these people. They live good. And what is the ground root of their their Alcoholics Anonymous as far as I know? My sponsor was mean to me. He wouldn't let me drive a car because I didn't have a driver's license. I asked him why. He said, citizens like him had a right to be protected from jerks like me. <laughs> he had all of it. I said, I ain't never been to penitentiary for driving without a license. And I never supposed to get a driver's license for the rest of my natural life. What about that? He says, and you won't drive a car for the rest of your natural life. Hmm. But you see, a funny thing happened. When I came out of the penitentiary, there was none of this, oh, we're going to ease you back into society. <laughs> when I came out of the penitentiary, my parole officer said to me, get a job or go back to the penitentiary. Ooh. So I got a job, but I can't get them a job because I don't have a car. I can't get a car because I don't have a driver's license. So I go to my parole officer and tell him that. I thought he was going to say, okay. He gave me a temporary driver's license so I could drive back and forth to work. Isn't that amazing? Now, how did my sponsor know that? He just told me to go to work. He didn't say go to work, you get a driver's license. He told me I couldn't drive a car, so I got a driver's license. So I called him up. I said, I'm going to buy a car. I got a driver's license. You got money for insurance? I just hung up. <laughs> I, don't, I don't, you know, I mean, you, I may be stupid, but you ain't going to catch me twice. <laughs> so the day finally came when I had the money to buy a car, I had the driver's license thing, and I had money to buy insurance. I went out and bought a car. I didn't call old Norm up and say I'm buying a car. I just went and bought one and drove it over to his house drove it up in his driveway and honked the horn. <laughs> he come around the back of the house. He had his, one of them undershirts on. He looked at me. He looked at that car. He looked at me. He looked at He knew that car was legal. He put his arms around me and hugged me. He said, Johnny, I think you're starting to get the idea. 
I said, what do you mean? He said, I think you're starting to get the idea that there ain't a damn thing special about you just because you got sober. That you just got to do what everybody else has got to do out here. There ain't no breaks for being an alcoholic. God, he was cruel. So I used to have to call him up to go to meetings. I didn't have a car. I'd call him up. Norm, what do you want, jackass? That's the way he's talking to me. I want to go to me, Norm. You're going to go over there in Santa Ana tonight. And I want to go with you. If you come by and pick me up, it's a hot night. And I know you're going over there, Norm. I said, okay. So I started to think about where we were going, what we were going to do. And it's hot over there in this little one-car garage meeting, and everybody smoked. and All evil. Then. So I put on my new tank top and my new shorts. My new thongs, I slicked back my hair and put my shades on, stood on the street corner, waited for old Norm. Old Norm drove up one, took look, took one look at me and drove off. <laughs> I don't think that's funny, for Christ's sake. I chased him down the street throwing rocks at his car. If I'd have caught him, I'd have killed him. So I couldn't do it, I had to wait till he got home that night mad and waiting to tell him stuff. Norm, what do you want, jackass? Some of us have to work tomorrow, he'd say. Norm, you left me standing on the street corner like an idiot. He says, you are an idiot. <laughs> he says, you act like an idiot, you dress like an idiot, you talk like an idiot, so you, obviously you are an idiot. He says, I want to ask you a question. I said, what do you want to know? He said, would you go to church dressed like that? And I said, no, I wouldn't. He says, you ain't going to my church dressed like that either. And he hung up. I called him back. Do you know him? You yell at me and me and tell me to shut up and sit still. You won't let me get up and move around and see what's going on. Why? He said, Johnny, if you want to go to meetings and not listen, that's your business. Did you ever stop to think that somebody else does? And I said, no. He said, I didn't think so. Selfish, self-centered people like you don't ever think about anybody but yourself. So maybe you ought to sit still and pay attention what goes on because you may need anything you ever hear in an AA meeting. You better hope that some self-centered, selfish, a-hole like you isn't sitting in front of you at the moment you need to hear whatever it is you need to hear. I said, what is I supposed to hear? He said, I don't know. <laughs> so why you ask me? I always hear what I'm supposed to hear. I hate to hear that stuff. <laughs> See, Norm is introducing me to a quiet, in, in his quiet, authoritative, mean way is introducing me to a God of my very own. I don't know that. See, I think he's just cruel and heartless. But he loved me a great deal. He's teaching me about a God of my very own. He's teaching me a lot of things about life that I don't know anything about. He's teaching me a lot of things about the fellowship I don't know anything about. I'm going to meetings with him. I'm sitting in meetings, and I'm getting a little better. I'm getting a little more sober and one night I'm in a meeting and Norm is talking at the meeting and at the coffee break we have on the coast, I went back to the literature table to read the literature see if I could find something to talk to him about. The guy tapped me on the shoulder. I turned around. One of them guys, he looked at me and said, Johnny, Johnny, Johnny. I said, what, what, what? <laughs> he said, I heard you talk the other day. Do you know you're a miracle? I said, oh, really? What was it that brought that about to you? You know how humble we are. He said, I don't know, man. I heard you doing wah, 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 wah. Man, by the time he got through in that ten-minute talk, I'm almost history. I just kind of floated back and sit in my seat, 
stared out the window looking for my spaceship. I know there's a star up there where I'm going. I don't know about the rest of you people. On the way home that night, old Norm's driving. I'm looking out the window, and he looked over at me and said, Jackass, are you smoking that stuff again? I said, I don't think you're going to understand this, Norm, but I'm a miracle. <laughs> old Norm didn't understand that at all. He slammed the brakes on, damn near ran into the divider and screamed at me, you're what? I said, I'm a miracle, Norm. He said, where do you get this nonsense? I said, Amy. He said, you're not a miracle, jackass. But Alcoholics Anonymous is the miracle, and you're just a small part of it. Now, I don't know what that does for all the miracles of making Georgia. But I can tell you what it's done for me. It kept me small enough to stay here. You can't possibly imagine what an egotist like me would do if I believed I was a miracle for a moment. Let your imagination soar. Probably be getting some Greyhound buses to take us all to Waco to do it right this time. I have that type of an ego. I know that. I'm not fooled by the fact. I didn't wander in here and be smashed into smithers. I have an ego that's monumental. That's why I have to have a sponsor who's stronger than my head. That's why I have to go to four or five meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous a week. That's why I have to have a job in every meeting I go to. So I got to sponsor these goofs. That's why I got to do, I got to answer the telephone. Will you come to Macon, Georgia? <laughs> Yes. That's because, that's because I have to, to stay down where I belong. I have to realize that I'm an alcoholic. I never want to be so magnificent that I can't let a drunk who's drinking not breathe on me. I hope I don't ever get that pious and hypothetical and spiritually intoxicated with my own goddamn magnificence that I can't let an alcoholic breathe on me who's been drinking. And if you ever get that way, I feel sorry for you too. Because that's what we're all about here. We're not about climbing a mountain and becoming magnificent and successful in life. We're about staying sober and carrying the message to the alcoholic who still suffers. We don't have any other purposes here. And if you have any other purpose in this, maybe you ought to go find some place else to hang out in. Because this is Alcoholics Anonymous. It's not Alcoholics and anything. It's not Alcoholic and the step to magnificence. It's just one alcoholic talking to another alcoholic. My sponsor beat that into my head more than anything else. Beat it into my head. And from time to time in Alcoholics Anonymous, I give it the great privilege of sitting around and smelling alcohol. I don't go... I go, <laughs> I don't ever get that far away from me, I'll tell you. I've been blessed beyond all things by being a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. By being, I'm not anything else. I'm just a coffee maker in a group. I'm not, uh, I put chairs away in my home group. I put chairs away on a Thursday night meeting. I make coffee for a thousand people every Wednesday night who don't appreciate it. They don't tell me, oh, it's good coffee. They just drink it. I keep wandering around waiting for somebody to say, all I ever hear is, coffee's a little weak tonight, isn't it? <laughs> I do what I'm asked to do in Alcoholics Anonymous. That's all. I haven't got to the point where I can't do anything in AA that I've 
risen to the top of my profession so I can kind of take it easy in A anymore. I'm an A member. You want to know what kind of A member? Call my sponsor. I'll tell you his phone number if you want to know it. I know my sponsor's phone number. It's 213-624-9258. There you are. He's on the East Coast somewhere. I thought I'd mention that. <laughs> because he told somebody that he was going to mention that I was in Georgia tonight. So we'd get equal billing. <laughs> I had Norm Alfie for 22 years of my life. He died, he died the day before my 22nd birthday. One of the hardest years of my life that I've ever had is the year or the nine months time time Norm died until I got another sponsor. And the reason that is is because I'd been sober a while. And I had sponsored people. And I'd started meetings and I had gone to meetings and I'd done this and I'd spoken here and I'd spoken there. I had a little podium happy from time to time. Magnificent. Couldn't find me from time to time, but I'm wonderful. And people would say to me, why don't you talk to the people you sponsor, Johnny? For Christ's sake, you got these problems. So I'd talk to them. I'd talk to a guy 10 years sober, and I'd ask him about this problem. He'd give me the answer, and I'd say, that's a good answer. He'd think the same way when I was 10 years sober. <laughs> and I'm goofy, and so I went down to talk to a guy by the name of Clancy one day. And all I wanted was the answer to this problem that I had already solved. <laughs> I'd already solved it. There's no big problem. I just wanted to make sure that it was validated by somebody who knew something. And he validated it. I'd already solved the problem. He told me that's what I was supposed to do. I got up to walk out of his office and so help me God, I can feel it right now. I can see it and feel it. I stood at the doorway of that man's office with a cold chill down my neck. I turned around and looked at him and said, Clancy, I need a sponsor. He put his glasses down on his nose. I thought he was going to say, what an order, I can't go through with it. <laughs> But he looked at me and he says, okay, let's give it a whirl. I said, what do you want me to do? He said, I want you to call me every day. I don't want you to come to Wednesday night meeting. It's been 18 years. I still call him every day. I still go to the Wednesday night meeting. I said to me the other day, so you still call Clancy every day? I said, yes. He said, why? I said, he hasn't told me not to yet. <laughs> you see... I can't run my own life, but my ego doesn't demand that I do it either. I know that. My best thinking gets me in a lot of trouble. I've been in trouble and done things since I've been sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, not because I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, because I'm an alcoholic, because from time to time I get to thinking what I know will make me better, and I pursue it into the gates of insanity and death almost sometimes, but I pursue it. But I get to pay the price for it, too. I get to sit around with the knot in my gut for my actions. I get to sit around with the feeling of isolation in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous because of my actions, not because of the people, but because of the guilt and the things that I'm doing and the knowledge that I am not everything that I want to be in Alcoholics Anonymous. And when I get in these positions of life, I have to go to somebody who's sober longer than I am, who's busier than I am in Alcoholics Anonymous, and i got to lay this garbage on the table to them, and i got to tell them what I'm doing. i got to 
I got to zip it open and say, this is what I'm doing. This is what's happening. What am I supposed to do? And then I have to be willing to do whatever it is that I'm told I have to do. That's all. And there has to be somebody in my life, and there always has been, except for a period of time, who I thoroughly believe and trust with every fiber. I bet my life that my sponsor's right. Time and time and time and time again. In that little nine-month period of time between Norm and Clancy when Papa was sick, I had nobody. I was just floating around out there on my own little egotism and my own little magnificence because I'm sober for a while and I've gone to meetings and I'm sponsoring people. I'm <laughs> and I'm running my own life and I'm crazy. And I don't know what to do about it. One of the greatest things that ever happened to me in my life was I was very close to an old man that... Uh, I loved a great deal. His name was Chuck, and he was the only father I've ever known. And I used to ride around in cars with him and listen to him talk and do things when I was new in Alcoholics Anonymous, and he fascinated me. And from time to time, I would try to parrot some of the things that he'd said to me, and he'd say, but son, I didn't say it that way. So I got to a point I wouldn't say nothing. Just sit there and look at it. And one night, I was at the literature table again. The literature table is a bad place for egotists like me. We're trying to feed our ego with something that'll make us better. And I picked up this pamphlet. We were up in Santa Maria, which is a couple, three hundred miles north of town. We're riding back that night, and I said, Papa, I'd like to read this pamphlet to you. And he said, what is it? And I said, why we were chosen. He said, we're not chosen, Johnny. I said, it says right here. I don't care what that says. He says, God makes the rain to fall on the just as well as the unjust. And we're not chosen. I said, then how come I'm sober? I know people who are far better people than I'll ever be who aren't sober. How come I'm not sober? He said, that's very simple. You've come to understand you're one of God's kids and you act like it. I said to him, what do God's kids act like? What do they do? He said, oh, they just wander around, try to help God's kids get things done that need to be done, and they do it for free, and they do it for fun. What a concept. See, I... I don't know how you feel about that, but I can walk right down the road with a God like that. I can harbor that that's the God of my understanding, and I've learned in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's not a punishing God. What kind of God would there be in this world who would favor me over anybody else? What kind of God would there be that would favor me over somebody who can't get sober? There's a lot of people who can't get sober. That doesn't make me any more precious in God's eyes than they are. I don't know why I've been given this gift. It's not because I'm anything special in God's eyes, or I'm one of his kids, or I'm wonderful, or i got this mountain to climb. I have been given a gift. We've all been given gifts here. We're all given the gift. The gift of sobriety, sobriety is, first, is a gift from God. But we stay sober by the application of these principles. The gift can be tarnished and removed from us. It's not mine to keep. I don't understand that. But I do know one thing, because my life is so good. I do know that I have been blessed by being around God's kids and being able to partake in their life with them. I got to spend the last year of that old man's life helping him. When he was so sick, I helped him. And I sat with him and put him on the lap and rocked him to sleep and kissed him. I loved him more than anything I've ever loved in my life. I love that old man. I've been given the opportunity to 
be kind to this wonderful old man and learn how to love another human being so I can learn how to love other things. I live with a woman today that I absolutely adore, love her. I never thought I'd ever, ever love any other human being like I love that old man, but I love my Karen more than anything in the world. I am capable today of loving another human being, another woman, and treating her the way I should always have treated women that I haven't. It's amazing to me. I got to take care of My papa was one of God's kids. You know how I know that? I watched him. I watched him night after night after night after night get in his car and go out and try to help God's kids get things done that need to be done. And he did it for free and he did it for fun. My first sponsor, Norm Alpe, was one of God's kids. You know how I know that? I watched him. I watched him night after night after year after year after month after month after month go out and help God's kids get things done that need to be done. I know he's one of God's kids. I watched my current sponsor, Clancy, night after night after weekend after weekend after weekend go out and try to help God's kids get things done that need to be done. He does it for free and he does it for fun. If those three guys aren't God's kids, I don't think I want to be one. I just don't. And when I get to wherever I'm going after they pat me in the face with a scoop, and if I get to wherever I'm going and there ain't birds singing and pretty flowers and people like Norm Alpe and Chuck Chamberlain and Myrtle Snyder and a few other people who've gone before us, Sky Walker and a few of them other people, I don't think I want to go there. And the reason I don't want to go there, before those people came into my life, I lived in hell. Absolute hell. And since those people came into my life, I've had a glimpse and been able to live most of the time in heaven with a God of my very own. I've learned to care about people and love people. I can be willing to give up my time and my effort try to help somebody else be given what I've been given here. I try the best of my ability to try to carry on whatever's been given to me in Alcoholics Anonymous just exactly the way it was given to me so it's not tarnished or, or colored over or misrepresented or watered down. I just give it Alcoholics Anonymous, meetings, the book, and sponsorship. And I'm a blessed man, a very blessed man. And before those people came into my life and taught me that thing, I lived in a hell that was hotter than anything I ever know. I don't ever want to go there again. I did not bring the way I feel about people like you and Alcoholics Anonymous when I came here. I came here a frightened, angry, bitter, hostile, violent individual. And somehow or other, because of your kindness and your understanding, you put your arms around me and wrapped your arms around me and you made a person who cared about other people about alcoholics. I love alcoholics. There's a story that I love. It's in a, a movie that I watch. And every time it comes on, I sit and cry like a baby. And the movie's called Ben-Hur. It is not so much that Ben-Hur was born poverty and became a big prince and he run around in them little carriages with the horses and stuff. The thing that gets me in that movie is that when Ben-Hur went to look for his family, he found out his mother was living in the den of lepers. And they tried to keep him from it because they didn't want Ben-Hur to catch leprosy and die like his mother. But Ben-Hur had so much faith that he wanted to see his mother, and he loved his mother so much 
that he was willing to go into the den of lepers and embrace his mother. And in embracing his mother, she was cleansed of her leprosy. And I sit there crying like a baby. Because that's basically what happened to me on the 4th day of November, 1959. You wonderful people, with your idea of love and service, and the carrying the message of the alcoholic to the alcoholic who still doesn't even know they're alcoholic. You come unannounced to me, and you wrap your arms around me, and you cleanse me of my leprosy, and you made me a complete, total, whole human being. I owe you my life. Every living thing in my life is because of Alcoholics Anonymous. Every loving thing I ever, ever happened my whole in my life, I will owe to this program called Alcoholics Anonymous. And please believe this. It is a long, long walk from a cell in solitary confinement at a Massachusetts Kid Penitentiary to this auditorium in Macon, Georgia, in October of 201. But for the grace of God, Alcoholics Anonymous, and good friends like you. I could have missed it all. Thank you.